0: Four years ago, this Sunday, exactly four years ago, I was on this altar speaking to this church who was wondering who God was going to send, what the future was going to hold, and I distinctly remember telling you to pray, to trust, and believe that God was going to send to this church and to this community the right man, the right family, and lead this church into fulfilling the vision that God gave this church many, many years ago. And just about a month later, God sent Pastor Matt and his family, and look what God is doing, church. Look what God is doing. I said the best is yet to come then, and I still say it today, for Green Bay First, for this community, for what God has for all of you, the best is still yet to come. As you And remember to pray for your pastor, pray for his wife, pray for his family. God answers those prayers. As a pastor for many, many years, I can tell you how important the prayers of the congregation is for your senior pastor and his wife and family. It's very, very important. Pray this prayer after me. Father God... I declare by faith that my mind is prepared, my heart is ready, and my spirit is excited to receive your word, In Jesus' name, amen. For I am convinced. Everyone say, for I am convinced. See, the question I want you to answer this morning is, are you convinced about your salvation? Do you have doubts, Christian, about whether you are really saved, about God's love for you? 1 John 5.13 says, I have written this to you. That's what John said, the writer of many books of the Bible. I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you know this morning, do you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life? This is not a sermon about eternal security, although I was asked, Pastor Jerry, do you really believe in eternal security? I said, well, I don't believe in eternal insecurity, All right? Listen, I was born as part of this church, I would say I was on the pews of this church when I was just a little baby. Not in this uh, particular area, but in the other area over there. But I was taught that we were saved by God's grace, through faith, right? Not of works, lest any man should boast. I believe that. But somehow, through no fault of anybody's really, except maybe my own understanding, I got this thought that I never could explain that, yeah, even though I'm saved by faith, somehow we stay saved by works. That was wrong. We're saved to do good works, but we don't stay saved by our works. In other words, the things that we do, or maybe even more so, the things that we don't do keep us saved. So like if I got saved on a Sunday and I messed up on Monday or Tuesday or whenever it would be, like, uh uh-oh, I'm out of the family, I'm out of the picture. So I'd have to get right with God again, I've got to get saved again. Somebody asked a question one time, it was we were having this group of Christian educators and you had to write something down so people could guess who it was. And we all knew each other. So my statement on on the board was, uh, I was saved 512 times by the time I was 18. And, uh, of course, that's not true. So, I needed to relearn that when God saved me, he totally saved me. You know, when you're saved, you'll never be more saved than the day you're saved. Do you know that? You can't be more saved than when you get saved. When you ask Jesus Christ into your heart, you have the gift of eternal life. Now, we grow, right? We grow in God's grace and and in knowledge, and, and we become more active and more effective in the kingdom. I guess that big spiritual word is called sanctification. But we're growing more like Christ. But you're not going to be more saved than with the day that you got saved. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I think we got it on the board here. This is Paul writing. He said, are they servants of Christ? I know I sound like I'm a madman, but I have served him far more. I have worked harder, been put in prison more often, been whipped times without number, faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole day uh, a night and a day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I faced danger from rivers, from robbers. I face danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I face dangers in the cities, the deserts, and on the seas. I face danger for men who claim to be believers, but are not. I've worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. This from one of the greatest apostles who ever lived, who wrote most of the books of the New Testament, more than anyone else, who in, his, in the name of Jesus, through his ministry, did incredible miracles. And he dealt with real life. And he could say, yet, going through all of this, after he gave his life to Jesus Christ in that great encounter on the road to Damascus, he could say, well, let's read it. In Romans 8, 38 and 39. For I am am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Someone should say a good amen to that. I am convinced. Say it again, I am convinced. Some of you aren't really convinced, but I trust that by the time this message is over and you leave, that you will be convinced. This speaks of Paul's personal conviction. Here, the heart of this great apostle is revealed to you and me. Listen, there are times in life when we're dealing with people asking questions that what people need to hear is a logical argument, presentation from the Scripture of what it means to be a Christian. And other times, People need to hear our personal testimonies. Both are necessary. Sometimes the only thing that's going to suffice with some people is a very cool, logical, systematic presentation of the gospel, of the truth. When faced with a, like we are in this world with an onslaught of relativism, we need to put forth evidence that demands a verdict, as Josh McDowell wrote in both of his books. Especially in these confused days when people, for the most part, don't even know what truth is. We need believers who can, as we were encouraged in the Scripture, to give a reason of the hope that you have. But there are other times when that kind of presentation doesn't suffice. Sometimes we put those arguments aside and simply from our hearts, we share the reality of who Jesus is and the difference that he has made in our lives. And on those occasions, it won't do any good to quote a scripture or give five reasons why Jesus Christ is who he said he is. Sometimes we must convincingly share with others why we are convinced. There are times when people might say to us, listen, I've heard everything you said. Now just tell me what Jesus Christ means to you. So at that point, evidence ends and testimony begins. Like I said before, both are needed, a defense and a testimony, and wise is the Christian who knows the difference. Sometimes we reason, sometimes we testify, sometimes we do both. In Romans 8, Paul does both. In fact, almost all, of the verses before those two that I just read to you, Paul is giving a reason of his faith. He's arguing for Christianity in a good way until he reaches the last two verses. And then like any good speaker, having exhausted all of his reasons why, having logically convinced his point, he now presents his own personal testimony. It's like people are saying, Paul, do you really believe what you are saying? We hear your words, tell us your heart. And so he does. He opens his heart to us and he says, For I am convinced. What does that word mean? It means to be fully and absolutely persuaded on the basis of evidence that can't be denied. In the Greek he uses a perfect tense. And if you would have been in my, one of my English classes back in the day when I taught high school English, you'd understand when I say perfect tense. But you don't have to understand that now. I used to teach grammar. I used to teach Shakespeare. And students would say to me, Mr. Brewer, do you really like this stuff? I'd say, yeah, I really do. And by the time this class is over, you're going to learn to love grammar. Eh, I'm not sure that they ever got to that point. In other words, what's Paul saying is, listen, I was persuaded in the past and I'm fully persuaded right now. I used to believe this and I still believe it today. Nothing has changed. I've been convinced. I'm still convinced today. And when Paul says he's convinced, he is speaking as a man who has staked his life on this reality. I was sure about this yesterday. I'm totally convinced about it today, and by the grace of God, I will be even more convinced tomorrow. I believe Paul wrote this chapter to give believers, everyone say believers, to give believers the assurance of God's love for them and of their salvation. Put it another way, this chapter is written to assure you that you are truly a child of God and that your relationship with God is secure. God doesn't do halfway work. He doesn't do something and stop and not finish it. That's why I love Philippians 1.6, a verse that really impacted my life as much as any other verse when I grasp it. Philippians 1.6, and I am certain, everyone say I'm certain, that God who began the good work within you, who began the good work? God began the good work. We'll continue his work until it is finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. God started the work in you, and he's going to complete the work in you. You know what the question is? Are you going to be a willing participant, or are you going to kick and scream all the way? And God's going to have to drag you along and keep trying to move you. Let's not be that way. God wants to finish the work in you and in me, and he's going to do it. I think that's what Paul's saying in these last few verses of Romans. You can know for certain. You can be totally convinced. You can be sure beyond any question that when you die, you're going to heaven. You can be as convinced as Paul was because not only are your sins forgiven, not only is your name written in heaven, not only are you justified, not only is Jesus interceding for you in heaven, but more than that, he says, you are are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ who saved you. Do you see yourself as more than a conqueror? That's how God wants you to see yourself. No matter where you've been, no matter what has happened that brought you to Christ, he's got great things in store for you. You can be convinced that God's love for you is forever. Well, like any good preacher, having laid out his arguments, he comes to the end of his message, and now he lays out his personal testimony. And that's the significance of the first four words of verse 38, for I am convinced. Argument over, personal testimony, starting. If you look at those two verses, it may at first seem complicated, but Paul is actually saying one thing and one thing only. I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God. Everything else, he says, is simply amplifying that truth. Everything else just makes it a little more clear. The word separate, by the way, means to tear away, to completely divide. Paul says, listen, nothing that can happen to us can finally and completely separate us from the love of God. One qualifier. All right? We need to notice. Nothing can separate us. Everyone say us. Who's the us? Those who are in Christ Jesus. This promise applies to believers and believers only. It's not a general statement describing everyone else in the whole wide world. Only those who know Jesus Christ through saving faith can claim this promise of eternal life. They'll never be separated from the love of God. For those who know Jesus Christ, there can be no separation from that. That's the teaching of those two verses. But the question comes to Paul, how can you be so certain about that? You speak so confidently. How can you be so dogmatic? Isn't there something, somewhere that could possibly somehow separate us from God's love? Good question. So Paul, to answer it, gives ten possible things that might separate us from the love of God. Ten possibilities. He presents them in four sets of of two each, and then two items by themselves. Together, I think they encompass everything in all of the universe. He includes every imaginable realm of existence. Here's how he starts. First he says, death or life. Interesting he begins with death, isn't it? And I guess that makes sense because death is the great separator, isn't it? Separates us from our loved ones, from our friends, from our family members. Cuts us off from everything that we have ever known in life. Death ends a career, it ends hobbies, it ends home life. Death brings it all to a screeching halt. Even more than that, death calls forth the greatest fears in life. What happens when we die? Where do we go? Do we go anywhere or do we simply dissolve into nothingness? Hebrews 2.15 speaks of those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Listen, I've seen it in many, many funerals that I have conducted. Fear of death. I've seen it when I visited in the hospital and say to the people I'm visiting, what did the doctor say? And it's not a good word. Death is so final, no wonder we fear it. Francis Bacon, great author, said men... Fear death as children, fear darkness. My friends, do you have a fear of death? Many people do, and they don't want to admit it. But I want you to believe this morning, the truth of these verses of this scripture, and let Jesus Christ remove the fear of death. That when your time comes or my time comes, as Paul said, when we leave this body, we will instantly be with Jesus Christ forever. And that can remove fear. Without Jesus, you face death and its terrors all alone. But for those who believe, everyone say those who believe, for those who believe in Jesus, death holds no fears. John chapter 11, this is what Jesus said. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, and even though he dies, even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Those are the words of Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose from the dead. What does he mean will never die? Well, if you know Jesus Christ, at the moment of your death, you pass from this life into the next life, life eternal, where you will be forever with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven, forever And ever and ever. Do we die? Yes. But if you know Jesus, you live on beyond the grave. It's not as some dream or or phantom, but as a real person. You live forever with our Lord. Death cannot separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Can I get a good amen to that? What about life? How many things in life? What separates us? War separates families, poverty separates whole classes of people, sickness can separate us from our loved ones, old age and geography can separate us from people that we love. Sometimes our sin causes us to do stupid things that separate us from those around us. We make friends and then sometimes we drift apart. People move to new neighborhoods and old relationships are forgotten. People say, We'll keep in touch. But most of the time, they don't. So many experiences in life pull us apart from each other. Can life itself, with all of its ups and downs, pull us away from God? In one of his sermons, Dr. James Montgomery Boyce tells of receiving a letter from a man who was dying. Although raised in a Christian faith, this man had slipped into a lifestyle that cost him everything. His family, his profession, his health, ultimately his life. And through this terrible affliction, he found the Lord. And in finding the Lord, his life, though fast ebbing away, had been transformed. Now his only goal was to use whatever time was left to know God better. This is what he said. I become obsessed with God. I can't get enough of the word. He literally has become my sole incentive to live. I've lost so much already and I'm losing everything else, but I cannot lose him. He is the only reason I hold on to life, miserable as it is. My living now is preparing me for eternity. Pretty good testimony. Not even a deadly disease with all of its suffering can tear us away from the love of God. Take the worst that life has to offer. It's no match for the love of God. Not poverty, not sickness, not hatred, not rejection, not failed plans, shattered dreams, or broken hearts. Not old age or ravaging disease or financial difficulties. None of those things, as bad as they are, can ever, ever, ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? See, as these truths become more and more known to you, these Amen should really start flowing out. Yes, that's true. Angels or demons? Next. In the Greek, this reads, neither angels nor principalities. Who are the angels? Well, the angels are the good angels who worship God day and night. Principalities, demons are the evil spirits who followed Lucifer when he fell from heaven. They're commonly referred to as principalities or demons, but immediately we ask, how could good angels separate us from the love of God? Why would they do such a thing? Well, the answer is they wouldn't. Paul's speaking here in. Hyperbole language, he's stretching even the most remote possibility, something like this. Can the angels, even if they wanted to, which they don't, separate us from the love of God? Answer is no. Not even the angels of God could interfere with the love of God for you and me. His love would overcome even the most powerful created beings. Demons are another matter. They exist to harass the people of God. Their entire purpose is evil and destructive. They're awful, horrible, scummy beings who prey on human weakness, tempting us to sin. When they inhabit a human soul, they lead it into constant self-destruction. Let me be clear on this point. Demons do exist, and they have great power, and they array themselves as an army against The people of God, they work to discourage you, to divide you, to attack you, to incite you, to provoke you, and in every way, to oppress you. Demons are very real. And we're foolish if we deny their existence. Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. So are his demons. But listen to me. Can the demons separate you from the love of God? No, no, no. They can make you... Try to feel as if God doesn't love you. They can confuse you to thinking that you've been rejected, but those attacks are within our own minds. That's all they can do. Colossians 2:15. So look at, in this. Yeah, I sometimes I can't even read my own print on these things. In this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Do you get that? In his way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. I love the old Easter hymn that says he arose a victor from the dark domain. Listen, Satan is a liar. He is the father of lies. He will only ever lie to you. And demons are losers. Jesus won the battles over 2,000 years ago. The battle is over. Can demons hurt the people of God? Yes. Can they harass? Yes. Can they confuse them? That's what they try to do, but that's all they can do. They're limited in their power. They're not omnipotent. Can angels or demons separate us from the love of God? The angels won't, and the demons can't. Listen. The Bible says that demons flee at the name of Jesus. When you feel attacked, you wake up in the middle of the night, dread, fear, whatever it is, you just begin to say the name of Jesus. There's power in the name of Jesus. That name is coming, has been coming against in our world, in our society. People either hate Jesus or they love Jesus. And if they hate Jesus and they're not part of the family of God, they don't want to hear the name of Jesus. But you use the name of Jesus and you will walk in victory. Well, the present or future. Well, now we move into the realm of time. Flow of events from past, present, and future. Is there anything within the realm of time, any recorded events, any present occurrence, any future possibility that could ever separate us from the love of God? The answer is, what? No. Listen, time is powerless against believers. He doesn't include the past because, as believers, our past was forgiven the moment we trusted Christ. So, if the past were going to rise up against us to somehow condemn us, it would have done so already. But it can't because the past was dealt with the moment we came to Christ. That's why Paul said, Listen, I'm putting the past behind. Don't drag the past into your present life or into the future. Some of you have gone through horrific things in the past. You've been hurt by people in the past. Listen, forgive the past. Let it go and move on to the good things that God has for you. If you don't, you will drag that stuff like a ball and chain around your spiritual neck. Don't do it. Let it go in the name of Jesus. Forgive in the name of Jesus and move on to what he has for you. That's a little little side sermon for you right there. But what about the present? Perhaps there's something happening right now that could separate our relationship with God. Answer, no. Jesus is greater than our present circumstances. Then he comes to the future. Is there anything looming on the horizon? Any horrible event? Some unforeseen emergency? Some unexpected catastrophe? Some yet unknown feeling that could break the tie that binds us to God's love? What's the answer, church? What's the answer? No. Terrible things sometimes happen to believers. We know that, including some things, I guess, that we have to bear personal responsibility for. But none of those things can separate us from the love of God. No sickness, no disease, no loneliness, bankruptcies, financial setbacks, anything. There's nothing you're going through right now, no matter how terrible, that can separate you from the love of God. Listen, you might suffer greatly because of your mistakes and your sins, but even those things can't separate you from God's everlasting love. What about life beyond the grave? Does the protection of Jesus extend into the next life or does his promise terminate with our physical death? Listen, we're protected here. What about the hereafter? Paul answers that question in Philippians 1.23 when he says, I desire to depart and be with Christ. That's the verse you need to know. The very moment that you die, Christian friend, you pass into the eternal presence of Jesus Christ, <laughs> wherever He is, whatever spiritual state that might be, no matter what the outward circumstances are. If we are with Christ and in Christ, we are safe. We couldn't be safer. Well, then he talks about any spiritual powers. That word here is is uh, dunamis, which in The New Testament usually refers to various spiritual powers. Well, we might think of things like black magic or voodoo or witchcraft or astrology or wizardry or warlocks or New Age mystics, reincarnationists, people who claim to see auras, cast spells, read tarot cards, tell fortunes, conduct seances, and so forth. The Word covers the whole array of alleged and real spiritual powers. The whole gamut of Evil spiritual influences. Here's the point. Whatever Satan can think up, whatever his followers can concoct, whatever alleged spiritual forces might be arrayed against you and me, nothing can separate us from God's love. No one can cast a spell on you and take away your salvation. Never, no, no. No one can chant or hum or read cards and destroy your relationship with Jesus. No one can call on the spirits of dead people to somehow sabotage your Christian faith. It can't happen. Jesus is greater than all the spiritual powers of the universe. Never forget, Christian friend, that greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. Always. Always. No power can do that. No power can do that. Anything Satan does, any supernatural manifestation of Satan it can destroy our faith. Never. Well, then he talks about height or depth. This is the final matched pair. He turns to new, this realm of space, height and depth. If we were somehow went high enough, we could be separated from God. No. If we went low enough, we could be severed from God. No. The love of God is everywhere, folks. At this point, you might think of Psalm 139. Look what it says. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far sides of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. It's a great verse, isn't it? Verses. Is there anything in heaven that can separate you from the love of God? No. Anything in hell that can separate you from the love of God? No. Nothing as high as you can go, nothing as low as you can be. Nothing. There might be another possible meaning to this phrase. Commentators tell us that these two words were used in ancient astrology to describe a a point beyond the horizon, the, the, the highest height and a point directly below the deepest depth. These points were used in making astrological forecasts if that's the meaning that Paul's telling us, that even so-called astrological powers can't separate you from the love of God. Are you getting the picture, church? I like this last one. Nor anything else. It's as if, he, this is his final category. This is exhausted. Everything he could think of. He's covered all the possible categories. But just in case, he's forgotten something. He says, anything else in all creation. Just in case, in some realm of existence that I haven't covered, I'm going to include it here. If you can think of anything else that the Apostle Paul hasn't thought of, put it in this last category. Is there any creature that can separate us? No. Any created being that can separate us? No. Is there anything in the universe? No. The The word here in the Greek is heteros, means another of a different kind. It may mean this universe or any other universe if there is or could be another universe, that pretty much covers it all. If there is another universe that we know nothing about, wherever it might be, and whatever it might contain, there's nothing in it that could ever separate us from God's love. There's nothing that is or ever could be, nothing you could dream of or imagine that could separate a believer from God's amazing love. For his children. Some have asked me the question can I separate myself from God's love and eternal life?